of of bit bit perspective. This is Yang, and this is Kes. And it's time for the Offbeat Perspectives podcast, where we are going to try to tackle the elephant in the room. For the most part, we grew up being told not to talk about religion and politics because these are the topics that divide all of us. But I want to get frank enough about some of these issues, which are the perennial elephants in the room. So here we are, featuring a series of first-hand interviews and commentaries. Our goal here is to explore sensitive but important issues in society, and of course, the intersectionality of our culture, media, and politics. As we all know, Singapore sort of prides itself on being a multicultural yet secular state, which provides equal treatment to all of its citizens, regardless of their race, religion, sex, and maybe class even. But with institutions like AMLA and MUIS, which govern specifically Muslim issues, how is Singapore going to balance secularity without the same institutions designated for other religious and racial communities? For this very first episode, we have invited Muslim interfaith activist Mr. Mohammed Imran to enlighten us with his views. He has been an interreligious researcher for quite some time now, and his articles have been published in various media sources like the Straits Times, China News Asia, and Berita Harian. He's currently the co-founder and director of Center for Interfaith Understanding, Sifu, which focuses on interreligious content and curriculum development, as well as research, publishing, and partnerships for deeper intercultural and interfaith appreciation. We hope that after today's episode, you will ponder about how secular Singapore actually is, and have a more comprehensive understanding of governing religion and race in Singapore. Hi, Mr. Riman. Thanks for agreeing to having the interview with us today. Before we start the ball rolling, would you like to first introduce yourself? I'm a Muslim. I'm born a Muslim, and currently I'm involved in a lot of interfaith work, uh, basically trying to bridge understanding and deepening of understanding between people who hold different beliefs, and that also include people who doesn't subscribe to any faith.、Uh, and I think the whole idea is to get people to understand each other better. Beyond、uh, stereotypes and generalizations that they have, race and religion are two identities that are very much alive and、uh, has significant impact in our everyday lives. So, until and unless we can talk about it,、uh, then we will not go far in terms of forging our、uh, social cohesion. I think Singapore society has matured、uh, enough to be able to talk about these issues in a sensible way.、Uh, Like it or not, also the opening up of the、uh, social media space has allowed、uh, more voices to come in and and engage with the issues. So there's no way of running away from from these two topics, particularly since globally also we see a rise in identity politics. At the same time, also I think there was a turning point,、uh, especially with the、uh, 9/11,、uh, that has really show how societies can be torn apart. Uh, upon an instant spectacular act of、uh, violence like terrorism,、uh, and people can actually act on prejudices that they might have of the other community,、uh, and that may not all go well for the health of Singapore society. So that's why we saw a bit more、uh, support from the government in terms of pushing for. More interfaith dialogues, more intercultural、mm-hmm. engagements. Well, earlier there was the formation of the IRCC, the Interracial 
confidence circle which was expanded to the interracial and religious confidence circle uh, and then 2006 was a community engagement program where the government poured in a lot of resources for ground up initiative to engage on such work but I still see a problem there in the sense that it's still top-down approach it's still very much driven by by uh, government agencies uh, I think there, there's a lot of potential for ground up initiative to come out even more uh, and address the issues uh, uh, better uh, but I think there are also things happening on the ground that uh, the government might not have levers on. They might not understand some nuances better unless they can engage with people who are really on the ground doing uh, such works uh, and, and provide a more uh, richer perspective that can actually shape the discourse better. For example, the notion of offence, religious offence, right? To what extent do we allow uh, offence uh, uh, which might actually cause uh, discomfort, may even cause uh, unhappiness uh, uh, and, and touch on sensitivities of people's deepest identities, right? like religion, for example. But at the same time also, you cannot achieve some degree of reform without uh, raising uncomfortable questions or questioning status quo uh, or critiquing certain established opinions. So, where, how do we negotiate those kind of issues? I think we are still evolving and trying to figure it out. So, moving on to the main interview which we are first focused on Islam. Do you have any thoughts about what is being spoken about apostasy in the Quran? I'm not a religious teacher in the sense that I will not be able to give you a direct answer in terms of the Islamic position. And in fact, Muslim scholars have also debated on the issue and it's very difficult to say that there is a monolithic singular view on apostasy issue. Uh, and there are several verses that indicate that uh, the, uh, someone who actually apostasizes uh, uh, should not have any earthly consequences uh, in the sense of there is no earthly punishments for that person. Of course, in the hereafter, it's a different case. And we have verses that indicate uh, to a degree freedom of religion. For example, the verse, uh, there is no compulsion in religion, which is uh, often used uh, by Muslim scholars to indicate uh, that someone, based on his conscience, decides not to believe in Islam anymore, then he's free to do so. Mm. May I clarify if apostasy is actually punishable by the death penalty under Islamic jurisprudence? So, people apostatize for different reasons. But if we look at the jurisprudential tradition of Islam, that means uh, how the legal scholars have actually tried to understand and utilize some of the resources from the primary text, the Quran, as well as the sayings of the Prophet, uh, then they developed uh, quite a different position in the past. In the medieval period especially, apostasy is seen as uh, a punishable crime. Uh, but uh, uh, the kind of punishments may differ yeah. uh, and I will not hide it and say that uh, some Muslim scholars in the past in the medieval period do, do uh, advocate for death penalty yeah. mm-hmm. with some degree of like giving a number of days for repentance and things like that but that's also because apostasy then was not just a simple leaving of the faith but it's also seen as an act of treason against the community and we have to bear in mind that in the medieval period uh, religion is primarily tied also to state identity. 
So to leave the religion means also that you are crossing over to the enemy side, especially in a world where Muslim empires are engaged with rival empires uh, that are based along religious lines. For example, in Christian Europe, uh, which uh, is uh, in conflict with uh, the Muslim empires. Even in modern times when you go against the state and, and share state secrets, for example, as an act of treason, you are punishable. Uh, it's, it's definitely a crime in, in many countries at least. It's actually a modern condition in the sense that what we are dealing is primarily with uh, a political issue. And what we are dealing with is the emergence of the nation-state system that actually has the centralizing power of enacting laws, uh, codifying it and, and imposing a singular uh, legal markers for citizens. But in a nation-state, the problem is when religion becomes part of the state instrument and there is no other coercive power other than state power. Then this is where you find uh, religious identity politics coming in and people think that the state must be organized along religious laws and these religious laws ought to be imposed on the citizens and that's where the problem is. But state laws, we need to understand that state laws is always different from religious laws. They may intersect, uh, some may intersect but uh, largely these are two different categories in the sense that state laws are enacted through, depending on the political system of the country, maybe through an act of parliament, through, through, uh, through, through the rulers, etc. Um, and these are uh, not sacred in the sense that they are earthly laws that are enacted by human beings and imposed by humans, uh, and therefore they can be challenged, right? And they can be reformed, they can be revised, they can be thrown away. Um, but the problem is when people can't see the distinction and they think that state laws is as divine, transcendent, uh, and unquestionable. Particularly when society comprised of people with different views and opinions, religious views, I'm talking about religious views, and why should one religious view be privileged and imposed on everyone else? That contravenes against certain basic principles like freedom of belief which for me as a Muslim, I believe that Islam do have a very strong tradition on freedom of belief. Mm. Yeah. So I think freedom of religion, freedom of belief is paramount to, to a democratic country. And uh, I do believe that uh, a state ought to govern society in a secular way. Mm. Secular in the sense that it does not privilege uh, any religion uh, and it's neutral towards religious beliefs and therefore allow people to subscribe to whatever beliefs and religion that they want as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of others also to practice and believe the way they want. Would you like to elaborate your thoughts on secularism as such? I think the most basic uh, understanding of secularism is that the state uh, regulates uh, the country based on uh, rationality. Uh, that does not bind itself to any particular religious view. Uh, so some countries take it to one extreme in the sense that they would like to push religion out of the public sphere and totally relegate it to the private sphere. Um, uh, the French version laicite is one example, right? Uh, and therefore any kind of symbolism or expressions of religiosity in the public sphere would be frowned upon or in some cases also outlawed. Right? But we know that uh, there are also secular countries that uh, celebrates uh, religious expressions publicly as long as it does not 
infringe on the rights of others also to do the same, mm-hmm. and it does not create a, a danger to, to to the state itself, mm-hmm. right? Uh, America is one example. Uh, it's a secular state, but uh, you find it's rife also with uh, Christian expressions. Uh, so there are many versions, and Singapore is also another interesting uh, uh, model that we can look at, including India also, right? So in the case of Singapore, we can't run away from the fact that 80% or so of the population uh, profess to subscribe to a particular religious tradition, right? And we also have to acknowledge that it's very difficult for some people to actually dichotomize their identity. For example, at home, they are religious, uh, and then when they enter a public sphere, they have to suppress their religious identity or their religious belief. it's a bit uh, unrealistic to expect people not to be influenced by some religious view. I mean, they may suppress it in the sense that they may not use the religious language to explain why they hold certain position. But we know that underneath that is driven by religious belief. You know, like homosexuality issue is one example. You know, uh, some people may say they are against homosexuality, but they may not express that it's actually driven by their religious values. But we know that when we investigate, we question them deeper. We know why they are opposed to certain things because they are informed by religious values. Right? So I think uh, we have to be realistic about such issues. And therefore, when we engage in the public sphere, people should be free to express themselves and say they hold certain view because this is my religious opinion. Uh, but it's different when you say that the state or the government then must make laws based on one particular religious opinion. Then that's problematic and that goes against the principle of secularism the state can listen to the voices of the religious but they are not bounded to follow the dictates of the religious Mm. they can consider all options they can listen to all views including the religious and non-religious but the decision to enact laws must be must be based on certain rational principles that actually serves the interests of the common good uh, and not bounded by certain dogmas uh, driven by religious ideas. Mm. Yeah. To me, that is what secular state ought to be like. As most Malays are perceived as being Muslims in Singapore, this leads to the Malay-Muslim identity being intertwined with each other. Do you think this makes it harder for a Malay to hold a different religious identity? The Malay community is quite a close-knitted one. Uh, and uh, family uh, ties are quite strong in many uh, Malay uh, Malay social life. Right? Uh, uh, I think this is possibly also be due to the fact that Malays are a minority and therefore the tendency to, to come together to to, uh, to be more communal in many aspects uh, uh, is something that the minority community have to develop for themselves uh, uh, given that they are surrounded by a lot of other uh, diversities, right? Uh, for someone who is born in Malay, born a Muslim, and then decides to leave the Islamic faith, uh, it's seen as uh, it, it can be quite alienating in the sense that they they will feel that sense of alienation from their family uh, and from the community, uh, and possibly even from society at large because we are governed by these neat categories of CMIO and then. Malays are primarily identified as Muslims and where does this person who is Malay and not a Muslim falls into, right? Uh, and uh, social structures are largely revolving around race and religious identities. Um, so I can imagine the kind of uh, 
uh, emotional psychological issues that they have to go through uh, may not be applicable to everyone there, there are some individuals who are quite detached from the communal aspect uh, uh, of their lives you know? so it's easier in a sense uh, but for many others uh, something that is tough uh, well in the past they had heard of cases where someone crossed over to another religion particularly Christianity so, uh, you know Sometimes rumors, oh, this person has become a Christian and all that, that create a lot of controversies. Mm-hmm. People feel, oh, we are under threat, this is a danger, things like that, even though it's one or two individuals. Mm-hmm. But it's always tied to kind of historical baggage of uh, Christian evangelism, you know, of Christians trying to convert Malays, uh, and uh, also driven by historical baggage of colonialism that brought them missionaries and all that. So everything gets conflated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this gets projected onto this individual who left the, the faith, not because of all this, but simply because he no longer believes in the faith. You know? mm-hmm. But he has to bear the burden of this animosity and conflict and rivalry uh, between the, uh, the Muslim world and the Christendom, for example. Right? So that's unfortunate. Uh, what is missing in the whole discussion is the whole notion of can we actually accept the fact that Malay identity can be diverse? That it's not conflated with Islam, and therefore you can have a Malay who's Christian, a Malay who's an atheist, a Malay who's Buddhist, a Malay who's Hindus. We have that in the past. You know, Malays before the coming of Islam, they were even Hindus, they are, they are Buddhists. They have built an entire civilization that is Malay uh, civilization, but it's not Islamic. So we know that uh, identities are kind of fluid and changing uh, over the context of the eras. But somehow today you cannot differentiate between the religion and the ethnic identity. Mm. Especially in Malaysia and Singapore. Not so in Indonesia. So if you go to Indonesia, you know, the ethnic identity can be detached from the religious uh, identity. So you have someone with a Malay sounding name in Indonesia, you know, mm. uh, who looks very much like a Malay. Not an issue, but in Malaysia and Singapore, it becomes an issue because of the way British colonial administrators have actually conflated, conflated it, and it's even more problematic because in modern situation where, uh, for example, in Malaysia, the constitution has defined it that way that a Malay has to be Muslim. So when a Malay Muslim apostatizes, then he or she might have to grapple with this whole question mark of identity, mm-hmm. and that is where the alienating psychological trauma might come to. Mm. Uh, so, Malay community has not really engaged and discussed with these issues. Mm. Uh, it's coming on the shores. Uh, and some Malay uh, 80s have also organized themselves. Uh, of course, they are public about it. The Council of Ex-Muslims Singapore is one example. Uh, uh, of course, it's an unofficial uh, group in the sense that the state is also quite careful not wanting to legitimize such group because of the reaction that they can face from the Malay community. Uh, but it's there. Globally also you have uh, ex-Muslims who are organizing themselves. So it's a new phenomenon that uh, eventually we have to cross the bridge and say, look, it's happening, we have to acknowledge it and let's talk about it. Yeah. Going to my next question, do you feel Muslim-related institutions like AMLA and MUIS are still relevant in present secular Singapore? It's an, it's an anomaly in the sense that, you know, we are secular state and yet we have 
the government uh, having institutions uh, that actually manages uh, uh, Islam and also the, uh, the Malay community, uh, Islam especially, you know, in a very direct way through establishment of the Administration of Muslim Law Act. Would you like to share more uh, why you feel the government might want to have more regulation over the Islam faith in particular as compared to the other faiths in Singapore? I, I think it's, it's historical as well as pragmatic policy. Historical in the sense that uh, the Administration of Muslim Law Act is uh, actually not something that is new and uh, radically new and introduced by, by the government after independence. Uh, it pre-existed uh, uh, Singapore's independence in the sense that it was first introduced by the British colonial administrators, known as Mohammedan Law Act, right? And it goes all the way to to the 1824 treaty, you know, in the sense that the religious and 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 the customary laws of the Malays is to be managed by the Malays themselves, while the British took over everything else. Yeah, uh, all other civic and civil institutions. Uh, it's it's a way of managing uh, their colonies for the British. It was first uh, tested out in India and then of course it's brought over to Malaya. So uh, religion and customs have, has been carved out as a, as a special area that's to be managed by the elites in the, in the society. In, in the Malay society. Um, and that was why also the British actually uh, for the first time installed the Sultan as the, uh, as the patron of Islam, uh, which has, hasn't been, wasn't the case before the British period. Uh, and the British also introduced uh, the Islamic councils in their, in their states. Right? Uh, so it's both the bureaucratization of religion that happened, bureaucratization of Islam in particular. So that, that was historical element. Then, of course, we have a merger with Malaysia, right? Uh, and then that merger doesn't work out, and Singapore gained its independence, it was booted out. Uh, and therefore, there's also anxiety amongst the Muslim population, Malay population here, like what's going to happen to us or instantly, overnight, we become a minority. And therefore, there's also that concern by the government of the day to actually ensure that the Malays don't feel that uh, they don't have a place here. That was probably the reason why uh, there needs to be a special protection of the indigenous, which was there in the constitution. Uh, one of the articles they, on the acknowledgement of the indigenous and the protection of their religion and their language, etc. And one of it is the establishment of the Administration of Muslim Law Act to ensure the rights of the minorities. It has served the Malay community well in the sense that they felt that they do have a place here, they do have access to the government despite being a minority. Uh, but eventually, of course, people begin to question because there is this imbalance and we only have it for Islam, we don't have it for other religions and how does that fit into the whole notion of a secular state? So these are now questions being raised by the next generation. Aside from Amla and Muiz, I heard there is also the Asakiza Recognition Scheme which became compulsory around 2017. It requires religious Islamic teachers to be certified before they can even teach. Hence, do you feel like Muslim affairs in Singapore are being legally regulated more as compared to other religions? I think from the government standpoint, what they are interested in is more of the overarching narrative of stability as well as social cohesion issues. 
I don't think the government is interested in the theological debates happening within Islam as long as it doesn't actually impinge upon the overarching principle of social cohesion and stability. So, so, so that's from the government's angle. And therefore, when you have preachers who are saying things that might be harmful to inter-religious relations, uh, harmful to social cohesion, then the government has to step in and ensure that these views do not get propagated uh, and does not influence the community, given also the context of where Singapore is located in Southeast Asia, where identity politics, particularly surrounding Islam uh, and ethnic issues, are on the rise. Uh, and this all happened in the backdrop of uh, global terrorism, in the backdrop of Malaysian politics, uh, in the backdrop of the recent uh, governor of Jakarta uh, election. So all these things uh, compute into why uh, there is this anxiety in terms of ensuring that extremist voices do not get a space. And since the government has a lever over the Muslim community via uh, an official body like MOIS, therefore they use that in terms of uh, ensuring control. But of course, for other religions, there are other ways that the government uh, has operated. You know? In fact, any extremist views from any religion, uh, the government has different ways of handling it uh, through permit issues, through, you know, through entry into Singapore, through sedition act, through a lot of other things. Like we see the recent example of the Louis Engel, who came and this American preacher, who mentioned certain things that was covered in Rice Media, went public the government got the pastor, senior pastor from from a church that brought him in to actually apologize to Muslims. So there, there are different ways that the government handles for other religious communities. But because historically there's Mu'is, there's uh, Amla, you know, so that's how the government actually used that. Just now you mentioned about the extremist voices in religion. And throughout history, we actually do see extremism from different groups. As a Muslim yourself, how do you think the situation of extremism in religion will evolve in the near future? Uh, I mean, I don't have a, what do you call that, magic ball <laughs> to, to, to predict the future. Um, I think we, we need to understand that it's not really about Islam, per se. Uh, underlying all this is actually what is happening around the world is actually issues it's a very complex issue you know it's got to do with um, political yeah it's, it's politi politics definitely mm -hmm. yeah um, and also to some extent also the kind of uh, anger you know of certain class that has been not been receiving uh, the good ends of globalization mm -hmm. and therefore uh, the tribalistic nature comes in and then they derive their sense of identity from religion and therefore the religion is being used for political aims or for expressing anger towards structures uh, that they felt has created a lot of injustices, inequality, etc. So underneath all that is that. Um, things might get worse, I think, uh, given the current uh, global situation. Uh, we know that we are headed for more difficult times with the rise of the far-right movements in Europe, America, uh, and at the same time also we find the mess in the Middle East, you know, where 
failed states uh, and the uh, economic uh, devastation devastation that we see in many Muslim countries means that people are going to get more and more angry uh, as they feel that there's a lot of injustices happening and therefore the only way to overcome that is to utilize religion as a way of expressing that anger as well as to build a kind of counter movements as part of their solidarity against the injust perceived injustices, real or not. So it's going to get worse, right? And of course, we do have people who are actually stoking a lot of these um, uh, sentiments and utilizing it for their own uh, nationalist or even uh, global agendas. Um, and I don't think it's just affecting Islam. We see a rise of uh, Buddhist extremism, for example. Uh, of course, you know, it's it's not driven by Buddhist values, but these are Buddhist actors in 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 Myanmar, for example, right? Um, we see the rise of extreme uh, Hindu right wing uh, in India, uh, and we see even uh, Christian extremism in Europe. In America, so is the issue of extremism per se, and it might be expressed in different ways, including in in, in utilizing Muslim uh, resources to to craft an extremist view. So I, I don't deny that. I've got one last question, when it comes to balancing secularity and pluralism in a state setting. How do you feel Singapore generally fares as compared to other countries? I mean, it's difficult to make that kind of comparison I mean, because different countries have different uh, situations that they have to grapple with. But for Singapore, I think we have managed it quite well. Uh, of course, no system is perfect. Uh, and therefore, the, there are ways to improve things. And there, there are things that need to be reformed. It's, a, it's an evolving process. Uh, but we have certain things in place that uh, we are able to, to utilize in terms of managing. Uh, extremism in terms of managing interreligious relations and things like that. We have quite a very comprehensive set of laws. Yeah. Uh, in fact, for some people, it's too much also. Uh, we keep on adding laws after laws after laws, and then suddenly you say, hey, you know, it, are we getting paranoid about the whole thing, right? Um, but that's up for debate. But what I think we have got it right is the secular uh, framework that we must maintain uh, in terms of facing with all these different religious uh, interest groups pushing for, for, for their space. Uh, and the state has to be secular and, and manage this in the most neutral way and most sensible way. And I think we'll be managing it quite well. Uh, but there are also challenges uh, and new issues that are actually pushing the boundaries and making us uncomfortable and, and therefore we have to really question to what extent have we really got things right. Uh, the LGBT issue for example, you know, uh, or, or more specifically on 377A uh, and, and a few of other issues. Uh, but we have also to remember that Singapore is deeply multicultural, multi-religious, and therefore that is our greatest strength. Yeah. But at the same time, it can also be a threat. 
and given that Singapore is a very globalized city state, we cannot shield ourselves from things that are happening elsewhere. People are connected to the politics that are happening elsewhere. So something that happens in Malaysia, of course, it is going to affect the population here because we're all connected. And then, of course, our identities are also transnational in nature, right? I mean, as a Muslim, I, you know, Muslims are not just in Singapore, but they are also elsewhere. So when things happen to Muslims elsewhere, how much does it affect us? Uh, and therefore, how do we think in terms of our own local context, or do we identify with the context of other countries and and import their their politics here? And similarly for, for other faiths and also ethnicity, I mean, what's happening in China, how does that impact the Chinese here? You know, the Chinese here identify with 5,000 years of history and therefore they look to China in, in this certain way. Uh, or do they maintain the contextual nature of being Chinese here in Singapore, which is very separate and different from, from Chinese elsewhere. So a lot of these things, uh, we are not uh, immune from, from, from it. Like Given the historical context which differs for every nation, there's indeed no one-size-fits-all solution to managing religious affairs in a secular society. We would like to thank Mr Imran once again for sharing his insights. Thank you listeners for tuning in to episode 1 of the OP Podcast. Off-off-bit-bit perspectives.